Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Loyal Member of a Dysfunctional Family, Why I Go to Church. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 16th, 2011. When I was in high school, my father stopped going to church. He never went back. Whatever else that was, it was an act of bravery. Because at our small church in a small town, he still dropped us off and picked us up every Sunday. My mother didn't drive. I still remember how awkward that felt, seeing Dad waiting at the curb in his car, seeing and being seen by the neighbors with whom he used to worship. I like to think that my father lost his faith in the church as an institution, but not his faith in God or the gospel. But I'll never know, because he never said. There are good reasons to quit church. Tops on most people's lists are gross hypocrisy, violence, and intolerance. In the name of God's love, Christians have slaughtered Muslims in the Crusades, Jews in the Holocausts, and Native Americans. We've humiliated and exploited slaves, women, and gays. Clerical pedophilia has devastated thousands of families. And whether Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, fellow Christians have persecuted each other with similar sadistic cruelty. Other people leave the church because they find it irrelevant, mediocre, boring, or perfunctory. In her essay, An Expedition to the Pole, Annie Dillard describes her church experience. She writes, Week after week I was moved by the pitiableness of the bare linoleum-floored sacristy, which no flowers could cheer or soften, by the terrible singing I so loved, by the fatigued Bible readings, the lagging emptiness and the dilution of the liturgy, the horrifying vacuity of the sermon, and by the fog of dreary senselessness pervading the whole, which existed alongside, and probably caused, the wonder of the fact that we even came. We returned. We showed up. Week after week, we went through it. Christians have burned books, defended the dubious, supported pseudoscience, and avoided hard questions. In movies like Babette's Feast and Chocolat, church is portrayed as a place of moralistic, hair-splitting, repressed people who never have any fun and who don't really believe what they say they do. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Phil Yancey tells the story of a prostitute who, when she was encouraged to go to church for help, responded, Church? Why would I ever go there? I already feel terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. Still others leave church because our pious platitudes contrast so sharply with our unanswered prayers, bitter disappointments, intellectual doubts, nagging questions, or life traumas. In her memoir, Leaving Church, Barbara Brown Taylor seems to have left church precisely in order to save her faith.
One response to the church's failures is to long for a return to the golden age of the earliest believers. Unfortunately, the epistle for this week, 1 Corinthians 1, 1-9, disabuses us of this romantic fallacy. Paul taught at Corinth for 18 months, according to Acts 18.11, and he knew those people well. In his letters to those believers at Corinth, Paul addressed numerous ugly issues, sectarian divisions in which both sides claimed to be more spiritual than the other, boasting about incest, lawsuits between fellow Christians, eating food that had been sacrificed to pagan idols, disarray in worship services, and predatory pseudo-preachers who masqueraded as super-apostles. Like many people, I've often wished for a better church, but Corinth is hardly a model to emulate. The communities of the first believers were as compromised as our own are today. But despite its many and obvious faults, and despite the futility of finding a pure or perfect church of any time or place, like Annie Dillard, I keep coming back for more church week after week. Why bother? First, I lower my expectations and I expand my horizons. The realm of God's kingdom is not identical with the institutional church. At its best, the church mediates and points to God's kingdom, but God often works beyond and in spite of the church. Jesus reminded us of this when he compared God's kingdom to a fishnet that trawls the sea, catching both the good and the bad, or to wheat and tares that grow together. The inner circle of Jesus' followers included the traitor Judas and the betrayer Peter. There are many sheep without, wrote St. Augustine, and many wolves within. Further, despite its shortcomings, when I go to church, I experience much good. Couples working to hold their marriages together, parishioners longing to be good citizens, generosity to the poor, hospital visitation for the sick, efforts at building community in an otherwise individualistic society, adoption of orphans, outreach to victims of HIV and AIDS, care for unwed teenage mothers, building schools and hospitals in places that would otherwise never have them, and on and on. Focusing only on our faults distorts the true nature of the church. For all of the barbarities of Spanish colonization, there's often a Bartholomew de la Casas, a Dominican priest who defended Native Americans for 50 years. For every impulse of greed, there's the selfless compassion of a Mother Teresa, whether known or unknown. For every craven acquiescence to political power, there's a Thomas More who spoke truth to those powers. Without denying that God's kingdom exists beyond the limits of the church, I also believe that in some mysterious manner the church is God's ordained human institution where he has chosen to work. The most famous and controversial expression of this truth comes from Cyprian in the third century, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa. In his treatise on the unity of the church, he wrote, 
outside the church there is no salvation. And similarly, you cannot have God for your father unless you have the church for your mother. For Protestants who cringe at these words, both Calvin and Luther quoted them almost verbatim. Because of this, I want to situate myself where God has said he is present. The writer Flannery O'Connor said that she sat at her writing desk every morning so that she would be ready if and when an idea came to her. Likewise, in her memoirs, Ordinary Time, Nancy Mears writes that she moved beyond her lapsed Catholic faith and returned to the church, even though she still had many questions, so that she could, quote, prepare a space into which belief could flood, end quote. And so it might be that authentic faith results from, rather than precedes, fidelity to the church. Finally, I go to church out of an acute sense of my own needs. Being a Christian is one of the things in life that you can't do alone. During the Protestant Reformation, the Renaissance humanist Erasmus locked horns with Luther over their contrasting views of human nature. Erasmus rejected Luther's pessimistic views of the human will and natural reason, and so he returned to the deeply troubled Catholic Church. He said, I will put up with this church until I find a better one, and it will have to put up with me until I become a better Christian. So I'm thankful for a church, however imperfect, that has welcomed my imperfect self with my imperfect faith. We should never ignore the church's faults and failures. Rather, we should name them, own up to them, repent of them, and do what we can to correct them. Losing our illusions about church is necessary and good. Thus did Luther, overwhelmed with the troubles of the medieval Catholicism, offer what Diarmaid McCulloch calls a, quote, spectacularly disloyal form of loyalty to the church when he demanded radical reform. One of the earliest Christian creeds is the old Roman creed, dated to the late 2nd century. One of the fragments that predates it simply reads, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh. Such early creeds served as baptismal confessions, as the basic instructional material used for teaching, as a summary of our faith, and as an affirmation used in public worship. The centrality of the church in such a succinct expression of faith serves as an important reminder. And so, with the Benedictine nun Joan Chittister, I aspire to be what she calls a loyal member of a dysfunctional family. For books this week, I review Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Sons, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration, New York, Random House, 2010, 622 pages. Social scientists call it America's Great Migration, and it explains why when I lived in the suburbs of Detroit, I heard distinctly southern accents. 
Both a cause and an effect that shaped our country, between 1915 and about 1970, six million blacks migrated from the South to the American North and West. Wilkerson calls it the biggest underreported story of the 20th century. When the migration began, about 90% of blacks lived in the South. Sixty years later, only 50% of them did. The black population of Chicago, for example, swelled from 44,000 to over a million. Detroit skyrocketed from 1.4% to 44%. Isabel Wilkerson, who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1994 as the Chicago bureau chief for the New York Times, interviewed 1,200 migrants for her book. She humanizes this history by telling the stories of three individual migrants who represent the three main paths that blacks took out of the south, up the Atlantic seaboard to the northeast, up the spine of the country to the cities of the Midwest, and then west to California. She even reenacted these stories by driving from the south all the way out to California. Between alternating chapters about these three people, she intersperses straightforward social scientific analysis from history, economics, politics, and culture. When Ida Mae Brandon Gladney, born 1913, left her sharecropper shack in the cotton fields with her husband George in late October of 1937, she had never been outside of Chickasaw County, Mississippi. She died in Chicago in 2004. George Swanson Starling, 1918-1998, left the citrus fields of Eustis, Florida on April 14, 1945. He had completed two years of college, a miracle for that time and place. Then after a stint in Detroit, settled in Harlem, where he spent 50 years with his wife Inez as a rail car baggage handler. And then there's Robert Joseph Pershing Foster, 1919-1997, a surgeon from Louisiana who couldn't operate in white hospitals or on white patients, even though he had served in the army and lived in a parallel universe of a black aristocracy. Once he resettled in California, he became a noted physician to the likes of the singer Ray Charles. Wilkerson does not romanticize these personal journeys. Migrants discovered a new and virulent strain of hyper-racism in the North and West that led to all sorts of difficulties and disillusionments in housing, education, health care, and employment. Not only whites, especially European immigrants, but old-time blacks resented the new arrivals. <clears throat> Much of her book, especially her portrayal of life in the South during Jim Crow, lynchings, terror, torture, violence, and apartheid, makes for painful reading. We all owe a debt to these brave people who fled what Wilkerson calls a feudal caste system and forced America to move beyond 200 years of racism. The author is Isabel Wilkerson. The title, The Warmth of Other Sons. For film this week, I review a film from Peru. The title is The Milk of Sorrow, 
from 2009. After Fausta's Kicha mother Perpetua was savagely, ra savagely raped during a time of terrorist war in 1980s Peru, the daughter was so traumatized that she followed the example of one of her mother's friends to prevent her own rape. She took measures that were not only extreme but bizarre in order to protect her own chastity. The doctor identified the cause of her menstrual bleeding since she was a girl, but her uncle, who cared for Fausta, insisted that he didn't know what he was talking about. He said that during the time of terror, her mother transmitted her fear through her breast milk, and we call it, said the uncle, the, the milk of sorrow. Fausta tries to move beyond her emotional trauma. She actually has very few lines in the film. But poverty, superstition, a lonely Andean landscape, and an exploitive rich employer make all of that difficult. The Milk of Sorrow was nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film in 2009. It's in, in Spanish with English subtitles. From Peru, The Milk of Sorrows. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by the wonderful Gerard Manley Hopkins, who lived from 1844 to 1889. The title is called, I Wake and Feel the Fell of Dark. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you, heart, saw, ways you went, and more must and yet longer lights delaying. With witness I speak this, but where I say hours I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives a last away. I am gall, I am heartburn, God's most deep decree bitter would have me taste. My taste was me. Bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. Self yeast of spirit a dull dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and their scourge to be as I am mine, their sweating selves only worse. Gerard Manley Hopkins, I Wake and Feel the Fell of Dark. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 16th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.